Welcome to another edition of the MMA Lockcast. I'm your host, Manpreet, a.k.a. MMA Lock of the Night, and your boy on social media at MMALOTN. This week, we're going over UFC 281, which is headlined by two big title fights. In the main event, we got the middleweight title on the line as Israel Adesanya looks to defend his trap against a man that has beaten him twice in the kickboxing realm, Alex Pereira. And then in the co-main event, we got the women's strawweight title on the line as Carla Esparza looks to make her first successful title defense when she goes up against Chinese standout Zhang Wei Li. Very fun card going down in New York City, New York at the famed Madison Square Garden. So you got to believe that they're coming through with the big card. And yes, they are, as they have a ton of other compelling matchups on the card, including Dustin Poirier versus Michael Chandler. You got Dan Hooker taking on Claudio Poyas, the return of Frankie Edgar taking on Chris Gutierrez, and a lot of other fun fights sprinkled out throughout the card, not to mention the return of Molly Meatball McCann. So interested to see how she can continue this spinning back elbow streak that she's currently on and whether she can dethrone the highly touted prospect Aaron Blanchfield. But first, before we get into the breakdowns, let's make sure we go through the betting recap of the last event, which was UFC Vegas 64. I had no lock of the night play on the card, but I should have considering how easy one of these bets ended up being. So let's start off with the L's first. I always like getting the bad stuff out of the way first, so let's do that. Uh, Miranda Maverick, 1.5 units at minus 105 for her to win inside the distance. She had every opportunity to do so. Shout out to Shannon Young for, you know, staying uh, active and, and staying moving and not really settling in these bad positions where Maverick could just posture up and rain down big shots to get the finish. Um, yeah, you know, more credit to Shanna in terms of staying in that fight rather than uh, Miranda actually getting the finish there. So we end up losing my 1.5 units there. I felt like it was on the table the entire time for us to cash that ticket, but Young made it uh, not happen. So um, minus 1.5 units there. Then we took a couple hours on the money lines. The first fight of the night, Ramona Pasquale, one unit at plus 135. I believe she closed clo- she closed closer to plus 110, plus 105. So we got a decent bit of CLV there, but CLV mean, means nothing, at least uh, to people that when they want to cast their tickets, and that's exactly uh, what we were not able to do in that aspect. Uh, you know, she seemed to be doing decently in the beginning, but there was a big flying knee to the gut that uh, caused Ramona Pasquale to just fall to her knees, and Vidal was able to get her hand raised there. I will successfully fade Vidal in the future. I will see her again. I promise you guys that. Uh, next up, uh, I believe it was the next fight. Ludovic Shalinian had one unit at plus 194. And I significantly underestimated the boxing of Johnny Munoz Jr. So that's a bad read on my part. You know, I, I did not expect him to have as much success as he did with his hands specifically. I thought more so his game was based a lot around his kicks. Um and also his jiu-jitsu, which he couldn't really get going at, at in certain parts of the fight. Uh, and I expected that forward pressure, which we got from Shalinian, to start to break down Johnny Munoz as that fight went on. But he just was not able to catch uh, Johnny with anything. He was at a speed disadvantage uh, and he was getting clocked the whole fight. So bad read for me there. Bad spot on that, plus 194, so minus one unit there. Uh, and then in the main event, minus 2.5 units on Marina Rodriguez at minus 210. Another baddish read for me, right? I shouldn't be taking that big of a chalk against somebody who's as dangerous as Amanda Lemos is, right? I will say this though, you know, it had a pre-fight, had I known this fight was going to go into the third round, I would have been like Marina Rodriguez all day, of course. This is why I was betting her at minus 210, but given how tepid the pace was early in that fight and with them throwing almost no strikes in that first round, um, it allowed Amanda Lemos to be live for longer in that matchup. And then when she was finally able to open up in that third round, she caught Marina with the big shot. And some may say early stoppage. I'm okay with the stoppage, even with money on the Marina Rodriguez side is what it is. We end up taking a two and a half unit loss there. But let's get to the other, or let's get to the wins, right? We had two units on the under two and a half in the Mario Bautista fight uh, at plus 100. Easy cash there. Um, it, it was really apparent to me when we saw Benito Lopez on the scale of the 
the previous day that he just was there to, to collect a paycheck. And I personally wish that I ended up pulling the trigger fully on Mario Bautista inside the distance uh, as a lock of the night play, but I was more than content with just having him in a parlay with uh, Grant Dawson, who ended up competing later on that night. But great performance from Bautista. You know, it was a walkover performance. Benito didn't seem like he was in that fight at all. Um, I felt bad watching that fight. So we cash two units on the under two and a half and the parlay leg moves on uh, a two unit parlay of Bautista and Dawson moves on to Dawson. So Dawson, solid performance from him outside of that slight slip up in the early going of that fight, but he managed to get the fight to the ground. A lot of people thought that Madsen's silver medal uh, in Greco-Roman wrestling would allow him to keep this fight standing, but MMA does not give a shit about what you bring to the table in terms of your Olympic doings. It matters what happens with when you get punched in the face, and there are so many other aspects of combat that are incorporated and not just wrestling, and that's why Grand Dawson was able to get his hand raised there. So good win for Dawson. Uh, we cashed that two-unit parlay at plus 102 for 2.04 units. And then the last win that we had here was Neil Magny in the Coleman event, one and a half units at minus 109. Seemed like the tide was starting to shift towards Daniel Rodriguez in that second round, but the ever-veteran Neil Magny comes through in that third round, manages to get his first finish in a long time uh, over Daniel Rodriguez. So uh, shout out to, to Neil Magny there, but very happy to cash that ticket. You know, Neil Magny, 20 welterweight wins inside the UFC over the last eight years or so. The gift that keeps on giving, except against nasty grapplers. And what does he do right after he wins that fight? He calls out one of the nastiest grapplers at 170 pounds in Gilbert Burns. Not a good uh, call out in my opinion. Good for him in terms of ascending the rankings and trying to get himself into title contention. But... He's going to get out grappled in that matchup, and he might even get strangled while uh, he's there as well. So uh, at the end of the day, minus 0.58 units, so a small half unit loss on the night, minus 5% ROI there. Um, the only thing I regret is not going harder on Bautista, even if you super chalky at minus 300. After what I saw at the weigh-ins, I felt like we should have loaded up on him more as Benitez, or sorry, uh, Benito seemed like he really wasn't there to, to try to win, right? Bautista was there to win and try to get his hand raised and eventually get a title shot. Big, big difference there. All right, before we get into the breakdowns, I just want to give a quick shout out to everybody that's already signed up for the Patreon. We are around that 330, 350 mark as well. So I appreciate uh, all the vast amount of members that we got supporting your boy, not just for the picks, but the endless amount of content that I drop for you guys on a weekly basis. $5 a month, no long-term commitments. Link is in the description below. You can see my official picks right now. Even though they're going to be free to the public and they'll drop on Friday to the public, uh, the lines may not be the same. And that's the perk of being on the uh, the Patreon there is that you get the picks as soon as I drop them. Especially when I'm on a three-event three, three event winning streak or longer, I don't release them to the public. I drop a free dog of the night play all the, every single week. But in terms of... Um, uh, actual picks and official picks. If I'm on a three-event winning streak or longer, it's only going to be on the Patreon. But right now, lost last week means the picks will be free, but uh, the public won't be able to see them until Friday. So make sure you guys check out the Patreon. A great Discord community as well. Uh, we got the best bets and props article where I go through every single matchup and give you guys my best bet and prop for every single matchup, as well as my confidence level for each spot as well. So a ton of great things to look forward to there. Check it out. No long-term commitments. I lose this weekend. Go ahead and unsubscribe. It's fine. It's totally fine with me because you won't get charged for the following month. You'll still get the remainder of the month for that $5. So Maybe we can make that money back if we do end up taking it now this weekend. But I feel pretty damn good about the reads that I was able to make for this matchup. All right, let's not waste any more time, right? Let's get right into the breakdowns for this card. First fight of the night takes place in the light heavyweight division. And we got Carlos Olberg coming in at minus 120 going up against Nikolai Negumerianu. Now we got City Kickboxing sprinkled throughout this card and they actually start the card with Carlos Alberg taking center stage and then they end the card with Israel Adesanya hoping to defend his middleweight title once again but in this matchup I don't know if City Kickboxing is going to be going off to a great start or not right there's a lot of variables here that we have to consider but the thing that I'm most intrigued by is the the grittiness and durability of Nikolai Negomarianu when he first came into the UFC I wasn't that high on him 
especially the fact that he lost his UFC debut to Sapper Beg Safarov, who I do not think is that good. But we saw Nego Mariano take an extended time off. And when he came back, he's been able to put together, I believe, three straight victories now. And a couple of those fights, he ended up being the underdog. It's his grit. It's his ability to grind on fighters and take them to the ground and just, you know, beat on them there. And then when they're on the feet, he's okay with taking a couple of shots so that he can hit them a couple more times by moving forward and crashing the, the, the pocket the way that he does. He's a very tough fighter to put away. Obviously, Oberg will have the striking advantage here given his kickboxing background, but I don't know if he's comfortable with being dragged into the fire that Nikolai will likely drag him into. There is early concerns here that Albert could just boink him and or bonk him. Boink is a completely different term that I should not be using when talking about fights. But in terms of bonking his opponent, that's what I think that Albert can do early. But if he can't get him out of there, and given everything that we've seen from Nego Mariano so far, the guy can take a punch. If he can stay in there, take those big shots of Alberg early, he should be able to put him through the meat grinder and eventually wear him down and grind him out in this spot. It's a 50-50 fight in my opinion, maybe a slight advantage to Nega Mariano considering the paths to victory that he have has are there's more of a variety of it compared to, you know, just a knockout from the Alberg side. Um that's why I lean uh, Nega Mariano here and I don't mind taking a shot on on him around that plus 100 mark. Uh, you know he's become somewhat reliable he is still a little bit sloppy at times but I do think that in this matchup should he make it his type of fight uh, it's going to be very difficult for Alberg to come back and get his hand raised in this spot so yeah I'm going to go Nego Mariano to kick off the card as an underdog and get his hand raised all right, next matchup, we got Julio Arce coming in as a plus 175 underdog. He's going up against Montel Jackson, who's coming in as a minus 205 favorite. Very fun fight here between two, well, I guess Montel Jackson is the highly touted prospect, right? That guy's the one that a lot of people have been very high on. Uh, his betting lines have always been prohibitive in the fact that like it's very hard to bet on him, <laughs> considering he's always minus 500, minus 600 in his matchups. But... I think that this is a step up in competition that might make people realize that Montel Jackson is only going to get so far with his freak athleticism and big power in his hands. I do think the guy could be good, right? With more polishing, with more experience against higher levels of competition, sure, he can probably turn out to be a decent product. But, you know, beating the Jesse Straders and the JP Bays and the Felipe Kolarishes of the world, don't make me believe that he can be a minus 200 favorite here against the guy in Julio Arce, who is likely the better technical striker, right? Yes, it's nice to see Jackson get six combined knockdowns over his last two fights, but they're against JP Bays and Jesse Strader, for God's sakes, right? That's where my holdup comes. He does a lot of good work when he's able to get guys to the ground and grind them through the mat, similar to what he did against Felipe Kolarish. But when he does face opposition, that's tough to deal with, right? Like the Ricky Simone fight, the, the Brett Johns fight. Those fights, he got out grappled by better grapplers. But he was a big favorite in that fight against Brett Johns. I remember cashing Brett Johns as an underdog that night because there's still a lot of question marks for me, at least, on the on the Montel Jackson side. Let him fight legitimate competition. And every time he has fought legit competition, he's come up short, right? Who you are, say, solid fighter. I think he's somewhat reliable, but he's definitely the better striker here. He has a 94% takedown defense rate. And if he can keep this fight standing, I think his output, his footwork, and his kicks will likely keep Montel Jackson thinking and eventually frustrate him, causing him to make poor choices, which I think Julio Arce can capitalize on. I think that this is a good spot to take an underdog shot on Julio Arce at plus 175. I'm a little bit concerned about his durability. Obviously, Song Yidong was able to knock him out, and we've seen Julio Arce get uh, put down in the past. It's kind of escaping me right now was able to finish him before that um but i do think that he is the better technical fighter that's the big thing here or the better technical striker as well you know jackson a little bit wild at times leaves his chin up in the air when he's throwing his big shots and i think that we'll see that well-roundedness from julio arce evade those big strikes come back with his own output and volume and i think he's going to chip away at montel jackson likely getting his hand raised via decision in this spot i'm a you know, I'm a big Montel Jackson fan, so it's kind of hard trying to put money against a guy that I'm big on. But I think stylistically speaking, he should not be this big of a favorite. But should he pass his fight with flying colors, 
then I'll probably be okay with playing a chalk on him again against decent enough competition. The last thing I'll say about this matchup, people are going to definitely bring up the fact that Brian Kelleher has defeated Julio Arce twice on the regional scene and Montel Jackson disposed of him within a minute or so. MMA math does not work. Let's make that clear, right? We've seen it time and time again where MMA math does not work. Also, take into consideration that Julio Arce, 8-0 at the time of going into that first Brian Kelleher fight, Whereas Kelleher was going into his 21st professional MMA fight. Way more experience. And he was definitely getting better at that point of his career. Uh, considering that he eventually made it to the UFC soon thereafter. So I, I don't take too much from the fact that Jackson has an easy win over Keller or Kelleher. And Arce has two losses to him. Arce has grown vastly since that fight. It's been six years since they last competed. And I think he has a much better version now than he was back then. I'd possibly even bet Julio Arce should they be matched up uh, in the future. I think a trilogy would be great uh, between those two guys. And for it to culminate in the UFC, that would be cool as well. But uh, in terms of this matchup specifically, I think that this is a closer to a 50-50 fight. Given the striking advantages that Julio Arce will have, I'm going to take him to win this fight. And I'm going to hopefully cash him as an underdog as well. All right, let's keep with the Tiger Shulman guys. Obviously, Julio Arce, a Tiger Shulman guy. As is Mike Trezano, who's coming in as a plus-135 underdog against Korean standout Sung Woo Choi, who's coming in as a minus-155 favorite. This is a fun fight. The UFC usually matches up Mike Trezano in fun fights against other strikers, and they know that they're mainly going to get a striking clinic from either side, and uh, it will produce fireworks, it will produce entertainment, and I think that's what they're trying to achieve here as well. Sung Woo Choi, a very slick striker, uses his range pretty well, has good combinations, has great kicks, but I like, like his smooth strikes uh, down the pipe. Uh, Mike Trezano, solid striker in his own right, like I said, of that famed Tiger Shulman Muay Thai crew, uh, with training with the likes of Julio Arce, uh, Jimmy Rivera, Shane Burgos, you know that he's always ready to go and always down to scrap, but it seems like when he does uh, or is at a bit of a striking disadvantage, you see his numbers plummet right? Uh, the, the Ludovic Klein fight was close, uh, but the Hakeem Dewadu fight gets doubled up on strikes there, loses that fight. The Lucas Almeida fight drops Almeida early in that fight, but ends up starting to slow down later. Almeida starts to pick it up, ends up getting that third round knockout. But num in terms of the numbers, Almeida ended up doubling up Mike Trezano there. And I think the same thing could happen here with Choi, right? Choi, if he can get into his groove, I think he can touch up Trezano from that outside, utilize his size and reach advantage, and that might start to frustrate Trezano, might make him get wild as well. But I think that Choi will stay with that discipline, stay on the outside, touch him up, and likely get his hand raised via decision here. I am... Uh, going to be interested to see what the over two and a half is. As of this recording, there is no total out for this matchup, but I'm hoping that if it's around that, you know, even money range, or even if it's plus money, I might take a little bit of a shot on it because I think that this could be a, you know, a decently paced kickboxing matchup where neither guy ends up getting the finish. I do lean the choice side though. I do think it's slightly closer than the odds indicate, but... I still think that Choi ends up getting his hand raised. I think he's just a slicker striker. He's going to put his punches together better. And I think that at a certain point, he's going to get too far ahead from Trezano to tr for Trezano to catch up here. So give me Troy and Troy via decision. Surprise, different camera. You guys may have noticed that I switched up the camera angle a little bit as I've finally been able to capture the camera that I've needed. Uh, and for those of you who have been watching my channel for the last couple of weeks, you guys have noticed that I've run into some camera issues throughout the episode, but finally discovered the perfect way to go about it. But I've, I had already recorded the intro and the first three breakdowns of this episode, and I didn't want to let go of them because they were so good. So I'm going to hold on to them, but this will likely be the camera angle moving forward. So with that in mind, let's just get right back into the breakdowns here. Next fight up, we're going to be talking about Karolina Kavakovic going up against Silvana Gomez Juarez. This fight is a pick 'em, folks. This is a dead even matchup, and I completely understand why. Now, let's start off on the Karolina Kavakovic side, who managed to finally get her hand raised after an 0 5 run uh, that she was on from 2018. Uh, which included a retirement as well, or a brief retirement. Uh, but she managed to return. She lost against Jessica Penne, and then she ended up uh, 
pulling off a victory over Felice Herrig uh, via finish as well to even stamp that emphatic return from Karolina Kavakovic. But let's remember, she's 37 years old, right? This is not a woman that's on track to get back to a title shot or try to be in title contention of any sort. She's going to have to work a lot harder, and she might have to be a little bit younger to get back to that stage, but she should still be able to rack up a couple of victories and hopefully end off, end off her UFC career uh, a lot better than she was a couple years back. She's 37, like I said, and so is Silvana Juarez Gomez, uh, or Gomez Juarez. I'm always going to mix up her name, but uh, she's actually going to be turning 38 uh, next month. So she's actually older than Karolina Kavakovic, but I believe that Karolina, based on the level of experience she's gone up against, based on the level of fights that she's been in, she probably has more fight miles on her. Now, this is a, a fun fight, right? Po both women, primarily strikers. I think Silvana has a little bit more power in her hands, and that's something that we have to worry about here if we are going to look to back the Carolina side. But I think the technical striking advantage of Carolina will likely keep her out of too much danger in this matchup. And I think, given that she's with American Top Team, given how the last fight went, I wouldn't be surprised to see Carolina look to drag this fight to the ground. And then from there, I think she'll have a decided advantage in the grappling realm where she, where she might be able to pull off a submission victory in the spot. I am not 100% certain that she's going to go out there and get that uh, submission. But if she wants it, it would likely be there for her if she pursues it hard enough. But even on the feet, I think she'll be able to remain competitive. And I've seen this kind of narrative out there that Carolina is, is chinny. And I don't really understand it. Like she got put out by Jessica Andrade, one of the hardest hitters that this women's, uh, the women's MMA have seen ever. You know what I mean? In any weight class, uh, Jessica Andrade is one of the toughest ones to deal with. Uh, but Carolina, you know, she took all the hardest shots from uh, Yan Jianan a couple fights ago. It even went to the point of busting up her eye and her tear duct, uh, but she did not go down. She did not go out. She was in the fight the entire time. Now, Savannah has big power in her own right, but like I said, I think the technical advantages are going to be on the side of Carolina here, which will keep her out of bad, uh, uh, out of any trouble. And then from there, she can work her output and volume if she wants, or she could get this into the clinch, drag this fight to the ground, and showcase her superior jujitsu in this matchup. I do like Carolina here. I don't mind the the line that she's currently at around that pick'em spot. You know, if you feel convicted enough on either side, you're getting a good enough price to pull the trigger, which is why I like the Carolina side, and which is why I'll likely have a little bit of money on her come this weekend. Um, yeah, I like her in the spot, better fighter overall, and should be able to get her hand raised. All right, next up, let's get to this lightweight banger between Otman, the bulldozer, Azaitar, going up against Matt, the steamroller for Vola. So let's find out which construction <laughs> equipment or machinery is going to pay off here between these two guys. Now, uh, this is a pick a matchup, just like the previous matchup that we spoke of. And, uh, you know, I, I kind of understand it. There is that big, big early threat of a finish from the Otman Azaitar side compared to Matt Favola, who, you know, he seemed fragile at certain points in his career. So that is a big red flag in my opinion, but he is probably the better grappler overall here. And if he can survive that early onslaught from Otman, I have no doubt that he should be able to get this into the grappling room and eventually find a finish later on in his own right. It's a very close fight, be given that uh, early threat from Azaitar. I believe out of his 13 victories, he's 13-0, flawless uh, record on him. Ten of those victories have come via knockout. Two have come via submission. He's only seen the scorecards once. And I, I will say this. I watched that fight back, and he had that guy on skates the entire fight. I was very surprised that he was not able to put him out there and keep that squeaky, clean, 100% finish rate. But here we still are. 12 out of 13 uh, wins coming via finish is still very impressive. But he's only fought twice in the UFC since making his UFC debut in 2019. That's a big red flag for me, right? The last time we even thought about him or saw him was when he was originally scheduled to fight Matt Frivola back in January of 2021. That was the whole, you know, what's in the bag debacle, right? Apparently somebody snuck in to Otman Zaitar's room on Fight Island and gave him some sort of bag. UFC found out about this and they pulled him from the fight immediately considering that they broke almost every COVID protocol that they had in line for uh, that event and during that stretch of time where we still didn't really know what was going on with this whole COVID thing. 
So, uh, you know, red flag from him there. He hasn't seen any action since then compared to Fervolo, who managed to get a last-minute change in opponent that week. He ended up going up against Armand Sarukian, made a good account of himself going the full 15 minutes. But since that fight, he's gone one and one. He got starched by Terrence McKinney in 7 or 10 seconds or something like that very quickly, but then made up for it in his next matchup where he went to war against Guerrero Valdez. Very back-and-forth fight, but it was eventually uh, Favola who managed to get his hand raised just over the halfway point of that first round. It was a slobber knocker, and that's what I'm expecting in this matchup too. I am just so concerned about the fragility of uh, Matt Favola, right? It's no doubt and inevitable that Otman Azizhar is going to be able to land big shots on his chin early in this matchup. And I just don't believe that he'll be able to keep up with it. I don't believe that Fervola will be able to stand up to that power. The spot that I'm looking at, and the last time I looked at the line, it was minus 170, is the under two and a half. I'm expecting violence in this matchup. Like I said, early big power from Otman, which is going to be my official prediction, or a late submission finish or even TKO finish from Matt Favola as he turns up the pace uh, the later that this fight goes. I think he is the better, well-conditioned athlete in this matchup, but it's so hard to deal with the power that Otman brings into the cage. So whether you want to take Otman round one, whether you want to take him round one KO, uh, whether you want to take Favola via submission, I think the best way to go about it to cover all those bases is taking the under two and a half, as I believe that's likely the best way for this matchup to uh to to bet this matchup and try to get some money out of it. So uh, official prediction will be a Zaytar via finish, uh, round one KO, but under two and a half is what I'm going to be looking at in this matchup. All right, next up, we got we got two strike or sorry, we had two strikers early in this uh, card. Now we got two grapplers going up against each other here and Andre Petrovsky, who comes in at minus 200 and Wellington Terman, who comes in at plus 170. Now, this is an intriguing fight, right? Because of the fact that the public can't really set themselves up in terms of uh, what they think of uh, Andre Petrovsky. I've seen him as a minus 600 favorite in the past. Then I've seen him, uh, you know, fumble the bag. And now I see him come back uh, as a big underdog to Nick, Ma- Nick Maximov, pulls off the upside here. And now he is a big, uh, well, a relatively big favorite at minus 200 here against Wellington Terman. He's a big, strong grappler, utilizes his wrestling pretty well, uses utilizes his power on his feet pretty well uh, too, but he gets his best work done when he's able to drag fights to the ground. And that's what he's going to get in this matchup against Terman, who likely wants to keep this fight on the ground as well. Both guys are solid jiu-jitsu players, but I'd give the edge up to Petrovsky here, considering that he's likely going to have a strength advantage here. I do lean him ever so slightly, but at minus 200, it's just too wide of a line for me to get you know, excited about or even want to take a, a shot on this fight. Uh, I did consider maybe the under two and a half, which currently sits around minus 165, but I could absolutely see the situation play out where both guys' jiu-jitsu end, ends up nullifying each other and we end up getting a 15-minute grappling matchup. So all in all, I'll likely be staying away from this matchup, but I do think the slightly better jiu-jitsu player is Petrovsky and he'll end up getting his hand raised by controlling and possibly finding that uh, you know dart choke, rear naked choke finish uh, probably in that first or second round. But it's just... Close fight, very volatile fight as well in terms of how the jiu-jitsu can play out here. Um, but I don't want to get caught taking shock here. Um, and if we could get a better line on the under 2.5 compared to minus 165, maybe I'd pull the trigger. But as of right now, I'll just go Petrovsky. Petrovsky round two submission, no big conviction there. All right, let's get to this next matchup. It's a, in the women's, uh, I believe, flyweight division. We got the hype train meatball Molly McCann rolling into MSG here as a plus 320 underdog. She's going up against Aaron Blanchfield, who comes in at minus 390. And I'm still scratching my head over here considering why Molly McCann would take this matchup. Then you run the tape and you see some paths for her. You see why she might have taken this fight and why she watched the tape of Aaron Blanchfield and decided this is the woman that I'll likely be able to pull off a big upset on and continue this hype train that I'm on right now. Now, uh, Blanchfield, in her last fight against J.J. Aldridge, she did not look the big favorite that she was going into that matchup because the ever-underrated J.J. Aldridge was touching her up on the feet. Now, it wasn't a complete wipeout. J.J. Aldridge was just getting to the punches a little bit better. The combinations looked a little bit more crisp. And Aaron Blanchfield struggled to get her to the ground. If I'm not mistaken, she went 0-4 on takedowns early uh, early in that matchup. 
So in the second round, you saw a weird scramble situation uh, come to fruition where Blanchfield was able to latch onto the neck of J.G. Aldrich. And from there, she was able to get that submission victory. So good win for her there. But uh, my uh, or my thoughts are, it seemed like Blanchfield was starting to come into her own with the striking in that second round as well. And I would have loved to see that fight go on, right? Was it was the tide going to change? Was the striking going to start going back into there in Blanchfield realm? Because even in the Miranda Maverick fight, right? Maverick's success mainly came in the feet. But Aaron Blanchfield was lucky that she could tie up with her, drag the fight to the ground. And from there, Miranda didn't really have much of an answer off of her back. Blanchfield is very slick with getting trips and takedowns. And although it didn't work against J.J. Aldrich, it could break here against Molly McCann. But if it doesn't, that's where I could see Molly McCann being live. Now, don't get me wrong. This is not me saying we should go out there and bet Molly McCann as a dog. But if you really believe in that narrative and think that she can keep this fight upright, she's going to make this look a lot closer than plus 320 indicates, especially if this ends up being a 15-minute kickboxing matchup. As much as I want to rag on Molly McCann and as much as I've faded her in the past, some to success and some not to any success, um, she is improving her striking. She's improving her speed. She's improving her combinations. And she's throwing with tremendous confidence, which means that she's throwing with a ton of power as well. That could cause Aaron Blanchfield some trouble. That could cause uh, you know Molly McCann to make this fight a lot closer. But I believe that Blanchfield will be able to get this fight to the ground eventually. Right, I think that her trip's going to be a little bit too sophisticated here for Molly McCann. And then once this fight hits the ground, I think Aaron is the far superior grappler. I think she could potentially even finish her, which is why I don't mind maybe a small stab on the under two and a half at plus 180. There's, you know, finishing opportunities on the ground for Aaron Blanchfield. And considering the confidence in which Molly McCann throws on the feet, I wouldn't be surprised if she caught Aaron Blanchfield with something, especially if Aaron hasn't really, you know, mined her P's and Q's on the feet or even, you know, made the improvements that she needs to to stay safe on the feet. She gets her best work done when she's able to drag fights to the ground. That's what I'm hoping she can do here. But at minus 390, it's just not enough. Uh, it's not enticing enough for me to, you know, put the mortgage on Aaron Blanchfield, as I assumed I was going to do when this matchup was originally scheduled. But I'm going to be surprised, I, or I'm going to be honest. I did not think that she'd get up to this minus 400 range. I was hoping with the hype of Molly McCann, given the highlight real finishes she's had over the last couple of fights, maybe the hype would have allowed us to get that minus 200 on Aaron. But minus 390, I'm good to stay on the sidelines. Still picking Blanchfield. Going to take her to win by submission. I'll be keeping my eye on that submission prop. If it's juicy enough, maybe I'll make that an official play. But... As an official prediction, I'm going to go Blanchfield and Blanchfield by submission. All right, next up, we got the return of the Dominator. Is it the Dominator? No, it's the Devastator, Dominic Reyes. He's coming in at minus 225. He's going up against Ryan Spann, who's coming in at plus 190. Now, we haven't seen Dominic Reyes in over a year and a half now after he had gotten starched by Yuri Prohaska, which launched Yuri into that uh, title shot, which he eventually claimed over Glover Teixeira. But Dominic Reyes has fallen on hard times ever since uh, fall, falling to uh, John Jones, right? That was a big fight because a lot of people believe John, or Dominic Reyes deserved to get his hand raised in that matchup, but it ended up being John Jones who ended up uh, you know, retaining the title. And since then, John obviously hanging up the light heavyweight strap. And Dominic Reyes got put in to a uh, vacant light heavyweight matchup uh, for the title against Jan Blachowicz. Blachowicz showed off great leg kicks that dropped Dominic Reyes' uh, hands down and his guard down slowly and slowly throughout that fight. And then uh, Jan Blachowicz was able to land the big shots on the feet, put him out, showcase that Polish power, and win the title. Since then, Dominic Reyes has been sitting on the sidelines, and you've seen him jump around from gym to gym trying to find a home. We saw him at Extreme Couture late last year, but it seems like he's been spending the majority of his camp in Danbury, Connecticut, with somebody who's fighting in the main event at Glover Teixeira's MMA and Fitness. He's been training alongside Alex Pereira and Glover Teixeira, who's also getting prepared for his own title fight next month. So got to believe that Dominic, training with iron, sharpens iron, I mean, I'm very excited to see what kind of improvements we're going to get from Dominic Reyes going into this matchup. But I'm just a little bit skeptical about the layoff that he's had, right? Not to mention the amount of damage he's taken over his last couple of fights. That could be career-changing, right? That could be one punch lands from Ryan Spann and Dominic Reyes goes out cold. That's where my concern lays in this matchup. But I do think he's the better overall fighter. 
He's a better technical striker. He utilizes his range very well. He's a nice southpaw that uses that clean left down the middle, right down the pipe. Usually hits his opponent on the ch- or on the, the the nose on the chin and puts them down. But Ryan Spann has big power in his own right. Now, I think the longer that this fight goes, it likely favors Dominic Reyes. So if Dominic can stay safe enough in that first round, I think he'll start to take over the later that this fight goes, and he could potentially finish Ryan Spann in the latter half of this matchup. The over one and a half at minus one minus 120 is a little bit intriguing to me, as I think that we'll see Dom try to you know, take his time in this matchup, try to feel himself into this matchup, get comfortable back on the canvas of the UFC after being off for as long as he has. So I do lean Reyes here. I just can't get past or behind that minus 225 line considering his layoff, considering the durability questions. It's just too much for me to lay that type of chalk. But he is the better fighter. If he showcases that he can eat some big shots and keep moving forward, he will have my respect to potentially bet him at chalk in his next matchup should it be stylistically favorable for him like this one is against Ryan Spen. I'm picking Dominic Reyes and I'm picking him to win by knockout. All right, next up. I believe this is going to be the prelim headliner. Very fun matchup here between Hanato Moicano, who's coming in as a minus 125 favorite, and plus 105, the return on Brad Quake Riddell. Very, very fun matchup here between two guys who, you know, I think that uh, have some potential in this uh, this lightweight division still. You know, Hanato Moicano coming off that short notice step in spot that he had against Rafael Dos Anjos back in March, I believe it was. Uh, he accepted the fight on fight week. You know what I mean? I believe it was Rafael Faziev who either had visa issues or he had a COVID-19 uh, complication of some sort. But Hanato Moicano's like, hey, I'm ready to step in. And he accepted the fight at 160-pound catchweight, flew from Brazil on fight week, managed to make the weight, and then get it, got into that fight he got pulverized pretty much for about four rounds, but he made a pretty good uh, account of himself in that fifth round when he was looking to finally get, uh, you know, get on uh, Rafael Dos Anjos with the strikes, push that pressure, but ultimately it was too little, too late for him. Dos Anjos did a great job of mixing in his striking with his takedowns in that matchup and controlled Moicano for the majority of this fight. Could not get the finish, but still uh, got his hand raised that night. It was the fight before that for Renato Moicano that I'm a little bit skeptical about against Alexander Hernandez, where he was going for desperation takedown after desperation takedown in that first round, could not get it, and Alexander was the one landing the more significant strikes, getting to the punches a little bit quicker, and ultimately winning that first round, in my opinion, as he did on pretty much every judge's scorecard, if I'm not mistaken. But then in the early seconds of that second round, we saw Moicano bonk uh, Alexander Hernandez from distance. That caused him to wobble. That allowed Moicano to get onto a sub and eventually get that rear naked choke and get that victory. Now, you know, we saw Brad Rudell kind of falter to something similar when he fought Jalen Turner in his last matchup where he got hurt from the outside. And eventually we saw uh, Jalen Turner latch on to that guillotine choke and get that victory all within a minute or so, if I'm not mistaken. I think that Brad has definitely learned from that matchup. We've even seen him make a, a video on how to deal with fighters that are taller than him. And I, I think he's very much disappointed that he was not able to showcase it in that matchup against Jalen Turner. But I think here, uh, his takedown defense should be good enough to deal with what Moicano brings to the table. And then as this fight starts to wear on, I think that Riddell striking style will start to be too much for Moicano. I like the under two and a half here. It's sitting at minus 110. I'm going to see what it looks like once it starts opening up on more books. But I think that early, you know, club and sub uh, opportunity can be there for Moicano. But I think that the longer that this drags on, we'll see Riddell get more and more comfortable on the feet, start to cross the pocket a little bit more, work the body of Hanato Moicano, and then eventually finish him with the strike to the uh, to the head, a combination, a head kick, whatever it might be. But I know that he knows that he will have the striking advantage here. He just has hell and brimstone to go through earlier in this matchup. So I do lean Brad Riddell. I think he is, um, you know, the the better striker. Uh, If he can stay safe at distance, he should be fine the later that this fight goes. Uh, But rather than taking the plus 105 on him, I'd rather just take that near even money under two and a half and hope for some violence in the spot because that's exactly what I'm expecting. You got the MSG crowd firing you up. And I think that Brad Riddell, very disappointed in his last performance, is going to come out here with like a bat on bat out of hell, endure that early uh, onslaught, establish his own striking, establish his own power, and eventually find the finish. Similar to what Rafael Fazeev was able to do against Anato Moicano as well. So give me 
Uh, Brad Riddell, Brad Riddell by knockout, but the under two and a half is probably the best place to put your money for this matchup. That brings us to our main card. Make sure you guys hit that like and subscribe if you haven't already. And check out the Patreon as well, five bucks a month. Trust me, check check it out. No long-term commitments. So like you pay five bucks, you don't like it, you hop right back out. That's it. <laughs> All right, let's get to this main card, which has fire throughout it. And I can't wait to break it down for you guys. First up, we got another city kickboxing uh, product and Dan Hooker coming in at minus 155. He's going up against Claudio Poyas and uh, very intriguing matchup here because Dan Hooker on a very tumultuous run right now in his career. We're talking about a guy that's one in four in his last five fights, but we can't overlook those four opponents that he went up against, right? We're talking about Dustin Poirier, a five-round war, back and forth, absolute war that he went to in that matchup. Uh, Dustin Poirier obviously comes out with his hand raised in that fight. Uh, Michael Chandler starches in halfway through that first round. We know Michael Chandler has big, big power in his hands. He follows that up with a big performance against Nazra Hackfrass, where he showcased to people that he is still a high, a top level or top flight contender in this lightweight division, considering the striking advantage he normally has over his opponents. That's what I'm thinking that he's going to have here over Claudio Poyas. But let's continue on with this one in four run that he's on. He takes a short notice, very short notice, like a month's time notice uh, spot against Islam Mahachev at UFC 267. Obviously loses that fight via Kimura. Let's, let's, let's give him a break on that one, right? Then he goes up against Arnold Allen back in March. But that was a fight where he was trying to go back to 145 pounds. The whole narrative during that fight week was the fact that he could not, uh, you know, he, he just didn't look the greatest. Excuse me. Um, you know, the, the whole narrative that week was, is Dan Hooker going to make weight? Is he going to remain healthy enough? And uh, can he put on a good enough performance while doing that? The answer was an emphatic no. You know, he, he could not keep it up. Arnold Allen knew exactly that he was not going to be able to. So he put his foot on the gas as soon as that bell rang and he did not give Dan Hooker a time to breathe. He knew that one of those big strikes was eventually going to land and it's going to hurt a hooker. And that's what he did. He just swarmed on him and didn't let him get out of there. Claudio Poyas, that's not how he fights, right? Claudio Poyas wants to get fights to the ground. He wants to pull off knee bars. He wants to pull off amateur-ish submissions, which still work on guys like Chris Gertzmacher and Clay Guida and maybe even Philippe Silva after Philippe Silva beat his ass for two and a half rounds. But it's not going to work against Dan Hooker. Dan Hooker is a very slick BJJ player in himself. So I think he'll be fine should this fight hit the mat. But he is the far superior striker as we saw in the Nazra Hackbrass fight, right? He uses combinations. He uses his length. He uses his kicks. He is the far superior fighter here. I have no question that his durability will be fine in this matchup, considering he's going back up to 155 pounds. Also, Claudio Poyas, not that big of a power puncher or a power striker. Like, he does decent enough on the feet to stay competitive uh, against, you know, abysmal competition, but he does his best work when he's able to get fights to the ground and look for that knee bar, look for that submission. It's not going to work here against Dan Hooker. I'll be very surprised if Dan Hooker gets tapped to a knee bar in this matchup. We've seen Dan Hooker get put in much worse positions and still come out unfazed, come back and even win fights. That's what I think that we're going to see here. We'll just see him touch him up on the feet. I think we'll see this fight mainly stay on the feet. And there is a potential for a Dan Hooker submission. Shout out to my guy, the African that kind of, you know, brought it up. But like, I knew it was a, a potential as well, considering the desperation takedowns that we've seen from Claudio Poyas in the past. He leaves his neck out there, and Dan Hooker has a mean choke series, right? A Dars Anaconda series, something that he has pulled off in the past, and it could potentially come to fruition here. But this is the best part. We're getting minus 155 on Dan Hooker. I pulled the trigger a little bit too early and got minus 165, but I think even that was a bit of a steal. So I'm fine with taking uh, Dan Hooker money line here. No, and as fight week goes on, we may even get a better number on him. And I may even have to add an official uh, bet on him even more uh, considering the line that we're getting on him. And if it continues to get better, especially if it's a minus 140, I'll probably get on that even more. He is the far superior fighter here. I think people are being clouded by this one and four run that he is on. But the difference between the four guys that have defeated Arnold, or sorry, uh, uh, Dan Hooker and... Um, Claudio, Claudio Poyas is that Claudio Poyas is not Michael Chandler. Claudio Poyas is not Dustin Poirier. Claudio Poyas is not Islam Mahachev. And Claudio Poyas is not Arnold Allen. 
Claudio Poyas is Claudio Poyas, knee bar or bust. Dan Hooker is going to butcher him here, and I think he wins this fight relatively easily. Let's go Dan Hooker. I'm considering, you know what, inside the distance, probably the best way to go. Hooker via, you know, KO is live, submission is live, but inside the distance, flat out would be great if you're trying to get greedy with it, but just load up on the money line and you'll be fine in case this does squeak itself to a decision as well. But I'm going to go Hooker, Hooker via KO. All right, next matchup. We got the legendary Frankie the Answer Edgar returning to the cage here. He's coming in at plus 180, minus 210 the return on Chris Gutierrez. Now, it's been, uh, I believe it's been a little bit now since we've seen Frankie Edgar take center stage here. But every time we have seen him, it just hasn't been the greatest, right? Uh, The last time we saw him, uh, he got put out by Marlon Vera. Marlon Vera turned him into a goddamn NFT that night, right? He had a great first round. His movement, his wrestling, his output, it all looked great. But then Marlon Vera, as we all know, gets stronger as fights go on. And then we saw him pick it up in that second round, hurt Frankie on multiple occasions, and then eventually put him out in that third round. Uh, and this was a year ago, right? This was the last time the UFC was at MSG. And it seems like whenever the UFC decides to go to MSG, they call up Frankie Edgar and be like, hey, we need your star power to be on this uh, fight card so that we can bolster it, make it look pretty. Even if you're 40, going on to 41, we we still need your name because people love seeing you fight. But it's starting to get sad and sad and more sad as we've seen. Because his last three losses have all come via knockout. And it's not a good look, right? Chan Sung Young starches him in December 2019. He comes back with a somewhat controversial decision victory over Pedro Munoz, but then gets flying need in 28 seconds by Corey Sandhagen in February of 2021. And then obviously that was followed up at that Marlon Vera knockout as well. So in this matchup against Gutierrez, Gutierrez is on the rise. You know, a Factory X product. Shout out to Mark Montoya, one of my favorite coaches in the game. But uh, we see Gutierrez on a bit of a rise himself. He's been finishing uh, a couple of his opponents over his last couple of fights. He's been also uh, collecting bonuses as well. Uh, he utilizes his uh, calf kick very well against a lot of opponents. And I think that's going to be very important here against a guy like Frankie Edgar, who likes to utilize a lot of movement. I think Gutierrez will butcher that lead leg of him. I think he will butcher the calf kick. And I think from there, his punches will start to open up. And it's just inevitable that he'll eventually get that knockout victory. Right now, Chris Gutierrez is on a seven-fight unbeaten streak. Inside of that, or sandwiched in that seven-fight unbeaten streak, is that draw that he had against Cody Durden back in August of 2020. It was a close or a close fight, obviously, a lot of people, or there were enough people that gave Cody Durden a 10-8 in that first round, which caused this fight to be a draw, but he really pulled away in that second and third round, which is why he got the second and third round scored for him. He did follow that up with a big win over Andre Ewell, another big win over Felipe Kalarsh. It was a split, but Kalarsh did not enough in that fight to even deserve one of those scorecards. I thought Gutierrez won that, and then obviously goes out there and knocks out Denabat Grillo. He's a tremendous striker. Like I said, he realizes his kicks very well. And I think that his durability and his wrestling defense will be good enough to keep this fight upright in his realm. And from there, he should just chip away at Frankie. And I think he eventually finishes him later in this matchup. So uh, I don't mind the chalk on at minus 210 on Gutierrez. Um, I, I just think that this is far past Frankie Edgar's time. You know, I mean, this guy should have hung it up two years ago at this point in time. So I'm going to go with Gutierrez, and I don't mind anybody taking the chalk on Gutierrez either. All right, next up, we got a big matchup here in the lightweight division. Now, a couple of days ago, Dustin Poirier was sitting at minus 175. Now here he is, 24 hours later, sitting at minus 210. A lot of money coming in on Dustin Poirier. He might even be a bigger favorite by the time uh, this podcast comes out but I think he is the rightful side here. He's taking on Michael Chandler, who's coming in at plus 180. This is going to be a banger of a fight. Now, Michael Chandler's UFC career has been entertaining, to say the least, right? He hasn't been the most successful. Obviously, he's come up short a couple times, a couple main event spots, and a couple title fights as well, all of which he's come up short. Dustin Poirier, kind of in the same realm where he's just putting on entertaining fights nowadays, right? He's not going to be a champion. There's no way he beats Islam Mahachev. There's no way Michael Chandler beats Islam Mahachev. These guys in the lightweight, the top five of the lightweight division, they're 
big names, big-ish names, if you want to say that, that don't really deserve to be there. They're just waiting to pass that torch on to, you know, the, the other lightweights that are coming, the Armand Sarukians, the, the Matos Gamas, the, the Benio Dariushes, um, the Armand Sarukians, like those guys, and the Demiris Magulovs. The name value that these guys bring is the only reason they're still in the top five. So no way should, no matter who wins this fight, get a title shot. No way. But Neil Darius deserves the next title shot. I don't care what anybody says. These guys are no longer relevant, in my opinion, for a title shot. But Michael Chandler has accepted the fact that he is just in the UFC now to provide entertaining fights. He even talked about on an aerial Hawani show last week, I think it was, where he's saying, you know, wins are, wins are great. Well, obviously, we want to go out there and win. But putting on entertaining and memorable fights is what I'm here for. So he doesn't mind, you know, not utilizing his grappling advantage that he normally has in his matchups. He's fine to just sit on the sit on the outside and just throw big shots and hope to knock you out. That's not going to work here against Dustin Poirier, who I think is a, you know, a better technical striker. Is his durability starting to dwindle? It could be. And could one of those big shots from Michael Chandler put him out? They could. But I think the discipline from Poirier will likely keep him out of trouble. And I think he'll outbox Michael Chandler on the feet. I'm not 100% certain that he's going to be able to knock him out, but I do think that there will be plenty of knockdowns in this matchup, and I think there will be plenty of opportunities for both guys uh, to, to get a finish. But I do think that the safer and better fighter is Dustin Poirier. I think he gets his hand raised here by knockout later in this matchup. Minus 210, a little bit wild for me. Minus 175, I could get on board with, but minus 210 is starting to get out of hand. Um Chandler still has that speed, still has that big power, can still potentially land the big shot here and get the knockout. But I think that Poirier is a slicker striker. Hopefully his defenses will be up to par here. He can take those big shots, come back with even more shots of his own, and then take home a victory. So prediction here is going to be Poirier. Early danger is there from Chandler, but I think Poirier is the overall better fighter, and that will likely allow him to get his hand raised in this matchup as Iron Mike continues to try to throw himself into the fire Unfortunately, he's going to continue to get burned again and again and again. If he takes a grapple-heavy approach here against Poirier, he looks much better than plus 180. But I know he's just going to go out there and want to swing with Poirier, and Poirier will abide with him, but he'll likely be the cleaner and uh, slicker striker in this matchup, which will get him his hand raised. All right, let's get to the co-main event here. And here we have the women's strawweight title on the line. We got Carla Esparza, champion Carlos Farza coming in at plus 290, big, big underdog to former champion Wally Zhang, who comes in at minus 350. Interesting fight here, right? Everybody just wants to jump on the Wally Zhang train and say she's going to win this fight. You know, she, this is going to be a complete domination. Now, it's been time and time again that Carlos Farza has been counted out. She's been an underdog eight times in her UFC career, and she's cast six of those times. I've been on her three of those times. Cast every single one of them over Yan Nan, over Marina Rodriguez, and over Alexa Grasso because she is a superior grappler. She's one of the best grapplers in this division outside of Tatiana Suarez, who I believe is going to be moving up weight classes whenever she decides to make a return. But Carla Esparza is a phenomenal grappler, a great wrestler, and that's where she could potentially take advantage of Zhang Wei Li, right? And again, I'm going to keep flip flopping Wei Li Zhang and Zhang Wei Li because I just, I don't know which. Which way it goes. I apologize, folks. But I'm just going to... Maybe I'll just stick with one of the names. Maybe that helps. But the big red flag for me here is, you know, Zhang's fifth round against Rose Namajunas. She got taken down a minute into that round, and she could do nothing to get back to her feet. And that's Rose. Imagine what a far superior grappler like Carla Esparza could do to her. Keep her on the mat. The reason that Carla Esparza is always underrated and disrespected by most MMA gamblers is the fact that she leaves a lot to be desired with her striking. She doesn't, you know, she doesn't have the greatest technique up there. She shows some decent technique in striking against Michelle Watterson, but you can't do that against far superior strikers to you like Marina Rodriguez, Yan Jaunan, Alexa Grasso, Wiley Zhang, right? She was able to beat those other three names because she could get the fight to the ground. She didn't have to deal with as much power as what Wiley would likely be bringing into the cage here. So from a money line perspective, minus 350, I think it's a little wide, right? Because if Jean can't knock her out early in this matchup, if this fight goes 25 minutes, that means Carla Esparza had grappling success. 
that means Carla Esparza likely had a lot of control time and likely got a bunch of rounds under her belt. Because if this goes 25 minutes, that means that Zhang could not keep this in the striking realm. Because there's no way that Carla Esparza survives a 25-minute striking contest with Wiley. No way. Wiley knocks her out, for sure, if this remains in the stand-up. So the way that I would look to approach it, and the odds or the props are not out for this as of yet, but Zhang uh, by KO or Zhang inside the distance. The under four and a half right now is sitting at plus 100, which leads me to believe that Zhang inside the distance will likely be that plus 150, plus 170 range. And if it is, I might take a little bit of a shot, but I would rather get caught losing on a plus 150 than losing on a minus 350. Because one, the payout on plus 150 is much better than minus 350. That's the difference. So I, I, I do like Zhang here. I do think she'll get that early finish. I think her grappling has improved enough that she could be competitive early going here. But if she can get that knockout, and if this goes into the third round, I will live back Carla Esparza going into round three. I think she could scrape out the last three rounds with grappling, with takedowns, because the majority of the power from Wiley has probably dissipated by that moment in time. So, uh, yeah, don't you know get caught putting Zhang in every single parlay. Yes, she should win this fight. That's what the odds indicate. That's what our eyes think as well, especially with Zhang coming off that big knockout victory over Yuani and Jacek in her last matchup. But there are times where that knockout does not transpire. And that's the Rose fight. Right, Rose outgrappled her late in that fight, and Carla is a better grappler than Rose. So I don't hate anybody taking a shot on Carla, nor should you hate on anybody taking a shot on Carla, because at those odds, I think it's a decent enough bet. But I do think that Zhang inside the distance is probably the best bet in this matchup. Taking her to win by knockout, taking her to even win by submission, maybe a club and sub situation is possible. But I think that Zhang eviscerates her in the first two rounds, finishes her, and retains or regains that strawweight championship she lost to Rose Nami Yunus a couple fights back. So give me Zhang, Zhang inside the distance, and new. All right, that brings us to our main event of the evening. Middleweight title on the line here. Israel Adesanya hoping to add another title to defense to his record. He's coming in at minus 180, and he's going up against former two-time foe, Alex Pereira, who's coming in at plus 155. Now, the storyline behind this matchup is why it's so intriguing, right? I don't mind that the UFC expedited and fast-tracked uh, Alex Pereira's uh, path to a title shot just so we can get this matchup. Because Adesanya has pretty much cleared out the top of this division. He's beaten Paulo Costa. He's beaten Robert Whitaker twice. He's beaten Jared Cannonier. He's beaten Marvin Vittori twice. There's nobody really else hanging out there. There was Sean Strickland... But Sean Strickland got knocked out by Alex Pereira. So I was fine with the UFC plugging in Alex Pereira into the spot because the storyline and everything just makes this oh so intriguing to me, right? So they met twice in the kickboxing room. And this took place back in 2016, if I'm not mistaken. First fight, close fight. I thought Izzy won. I thought he did more damage. Um, I think what the judges were looking at were the big power strikes of Pereira, but I think a lot of those strikes that Pereira threw were landing on the guard of Izzy and wasn't really doing much damage compared to the methodical discipline combinations that were coming from the Izzy side that landed a little bit cleaner. But judges gave it to Alex Pereira. Then the second fight, Israel Adesanya hurts him early in that fight, almost gets him out of there, is not able to, and then Alex Pereira comes back in the next round and ends up finishing him himself. What I'm trying to say is that Izzy has had tremendous amount of success against Pereira. But all people see is that gif of Adesanya receiving oxygen after getting knocked out by Pereira. And they're like, oh, Pereira's going to knock his ass out again. Oh, they got MMA gloves now? Excuse me? They got MMA gloves now? Of course, Pereira is going to be able to hit harder and knock him out. But the part that you're looking past is those strikes that Izzy was landing being disciplined, staying on the outside and throwing combinations, they're going to hit way more accurate and with more force now because they have smaller gloves. They're not going to catch the gloves anymore like they were in kickboxing. He's going to be able to go right through that guard of Pereira and touch him on the chin time and time again. Does he knock him out? That remains to be seen. I'm not 100% sure he'll be able to do that. Will Izzy try to take advantage of the fact that this is MMA rules and try to drag this fight to the ground? I think he might try just to give Pereira a couple of different looks, but I think the majority of his game plan is going to be with his bread and butter. 
is going to be his striking, which technically speaking is probably still better than Alex Pereira. Pereira has big pro- uh, power. Yes, he has a mean left hook, but that's about it, right? Like, yes, he has big power, but like I think Izzy is the far superior striker in this uh, matchup. Okay, maybe not far superior, but superior striker. There is that big power we have to worry about Pereira. So obviously we have to take that into consideration. But I think the odds are correct exactly where they are. Like Pereira still presents issues. Don't get me wrong. He is still live to win this matchup. But I think that Izzy is rightfully favored here. I have no intentions of betting Izzy at minus 180. I think like there is no edge there, right? This is the odds are correct. We can just sit back and watch this fight and assume that the fight is going to play out by Izzy winning this matchup. But like again, from a gambling and long-term perspective, there's no real value in taking Izzy at this at this line. I think he wins. I think he touches up Pereira. I think there might be some sticky situations that he'll eventually work himself out of. But I think that Izzy will be the far superior striker here. Showcase better combinations, get the output out there, and uh, turn up the volume the later that this fight goes. So give me a uh, Israel Adesanya. Um, I'm gonna say Izzy by decision. But I'm, you know, maybe the bad blood in this matchup gets Izzy a little bit fired up, and he wants to, um, you know, pull away from his discipline a little bit to try to go out there and make a statement. But we've seen him in fights time and time again where he's okay to just have the crowd boo, just sit on the outside and touch his opponents up and just win via decision. Could end up happening here. But you know, if you want to bet Izzy, go ahead minus one eighty, minus one seventy, go ahead pull the trigger. I'm not so sold on the. Uh, the, the the winning method here yet. I'll just say for the sake of this podcast, I'm going to say via decision, but I could win by knockout later in this matchup as well. So there you guys have it. The full UFC 281 breakdown for you guys nice and early on this Monday as well. Very much looking forward to this, this fight week. Obviously, big pay-per-view vibes. I got a ton of different content that I'm going to be doing. Uh, jumping on a podcast later today. I uh, got another podcast I'm doing tomorrow with somebody else. Uh, you know, Wednesday, I'll be dropping my lock of the night video as well. So you guys can know who I'm loading up on this card uh, this weekend. Uh, Thursday, propping you up with Cody. Friday, Ultimate Wayne Show. I got a very special guest, a very respected journalist in the game who's going to be hopping on with me. And then obviously Saturday, Fight Day live chat as always. I'm dropping that knowledge for you guys. All right, appreciate the love and support as always. Hit up the Patreon if you guys want to take those extra steps and supporting your boy. Five bucks a month, no long-term commitment. Appreciate the love. Otherwise. You know what's free? Hitting that like and dropping a comment below. That is the most I ever expect from you guys is just hitting that like and dropping a comment and obviously hitting that subscribe if you haven't already. All right, good luck on your bets this weekend, guys. And I'll see you guys throughout the week for even more content. Peace out.